Hello, I am Boyan First and you are listening to a new episode of Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. All this time that we have been on air and on your phones and tablets and computers, we mostly talk to researchers in Canada and abroad who study rural issues. But researchers are not the only ones who understand something about rural Canada. People who live in rural areas are also the experts on what it means to live rural in the 21st century. So today, my guest is just one such expert, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. My name is uh, Wendy Keats, and I'm the Executive Director of the Cooperative Enterprise Council of New Brunswick. We're a community economic development agency that supports uh, any kind of business that is in, has some sort of social, environmental, or cultural goals. In other words, um, that somehow make the community a better place. And there we go. That's what today's episode is all about. Wendy and I had our conversation in Fredericton in New Brunswick some time ago. We met in the bar of the Lord Beaverbrook Hotel and stole about an hour we had between our various work obligations. I was interested in speaking with Wendy because the organization she runs is a very particular piece of a community development puzzle. We've been in existence for the last nine years. We're a relatively new organization, comparatively speaking. And uh, we were established because there wasn't a provincial association and cooperatives in particular were having a difficult time getting organized and getting set up without some sort of support because your traditional economic development system doesn't understand cooperatives or other groups that have those kinds of goals if you're not purely profit-driven, you don't always fit into your traditional system. We work across the whole province. Now, we're very lucky. As you know, in New Brunswick, we're a bilingual province, and so uh, we have two councils. One is a Francophone council that works with any groups that want to operate in French, and we work with groups that want to operate in English, but we work very closely together, the two councils, and we cover the whole province that way. And we work with every imaginable kind of project so uh, it could be anything from a daycare to a yoga studio through to um, a community-owned wind farm and literally everything in between. So what are these misunderstood communities that don't quite fit into somewhat rigid definitions of what is economic development? It usually is groups of people versus a community per se. And ordinarily, a group has identified either a problem or an opportunity. And they have some sort of a, of a solution that has a business angle to it of some sort. So um, they generally find out about us through other people. Word of mouth in the province of New Brunswick is, you know, tends to be our best advertising. And uh, so they'll contact us and ask about, you know, how, how we might be able to help. But we also have existing businesses. So these aren't all new startups. So any, again, cooperative or a social enterprise that uh, requires some sort of assistance, we can help with a wide range of things, anything from governance, helping them with their board of directors, through to startup, through to raising capital and financing their projects. Not that we have the money, but we help them figure out how to get the money 
money, um, do business planning, human resource management, all those kinds of things. Again, because an ordinary business might go to, for example, you know, our CBDC or, you know, an enterprise network, this business model of social enterprise and cooperatives is really not understood by the traditional system, and so they have no place to turn at all, really, except for us. Given the role when this organization plays, it's almost miraculous that they are completely self-funded. We actually, in the cooperative sector across Canada, had funding under something that was called the Cooperative Development Initiative. And in 2012, uh, which the UN uh, declared as International Year of the Cooperative, when every other country in the world invested additional funds into their co-ops, our uh, government of the day, and I'll say it, the Harper government, uh, actually cancelled the only funding that we had. And so, to be very honest, we have no funding from government. And so we have to generate all of our revenues by providing a service and taking whatever surplus we can get from the fees we charge for that service and investing it back into the things that we can't get paid for doing advocacy and, you know, a lot of times education. Those early stage startup groups, they don't have money to pay us. And so, um, yeah, we're self-funded. Wendy says that the changes she worked on and witnessed in New Brunswick have made it easier for co-ops and social enterprises to raise capital. But the road to the current model was long. When I first started in this job nine years ago, and I was one of the founding members actually of the Co-op Council, and I remember contacting um, different government workers, MLAs and so on, and trying to talk to them about cooperatives and social enterprise. And they had no idea even what that was. So we spent years just educating people about, you know, the difference between a cooperative and a traditional business and their focus on, you know, community and and social goals, environmental goals, and, you know, the whole idea of, of people working together for the better good and to make an impact rather than just about making profit. And that was huge. It took us a long time um, before people started to understand the issues and the things that cooperatives can do that other, um, you know, businesses don't tend to do. There were huge issues. Our legislation for cooperatives uh, hasn't been changed since 1976. So, for example, you can't hold telephone meetings. You're not allowed to vote by email. Um, there's no mention of things like housing co-ops or worker co-ops or all of those things. Now, having said that, we have a really great uh, department, folks that we work with at the Financial and Consumer Services Commission. They've bent over backwards to just let us do what needs to be done. In the meantime, we've actually uh, written an entire new act for the province. and. Uh, and they have also taken that very seriously, and they've um, put the lawyers on it. We're expecting it to, a new act to be passed this fall, which will be very helpful. So that's one of the things that we've done that's, I think, made a lot of changes for groups that just couldn't advance their cause because the legislation was actually preventing them. Um, the other, One of the other uh, things that we spearheaded as a result of 
the need that we identified early on was uh, around uh, the ability for cooperatives and social enterprises to raise capital for their projects. So again, because they're not understood by the traditional system, they're also not understood by banks. So, you know, a, a very viable cooperative would go to a bank with their business plan, and because they had a board of directors, the bank would say, well, you want to borrow $30,000? Okay, well, then every one of your board members needs to personally sign as a co-signer on the bank loan. Well, I can tell you there's not very many people willing to do that. So that was huge. And so one of the things that we worked on really hard was bringing about a tax credit uh, program that was similar to one that operated in Nova Scotia uh, in, in New Brunswick. Our new program, just announced in May, is called a Community Economic Development Corporation Tax Credit Program. And it will actually give anyone who invests, any resident of New Brunswick, who invests in one of these CEDCs, 50% tax credits. So it's a great way to raise capital for community projects, and it could be anything. Again, it's, it's very, very broad as long as it's creating jobs and creating impact. Um, then it's likely to be approved. And so this is a way now to overcome the problems with getting loans or using, you know, you don't really go to venture capitalists to get uh, money for something that's maybe going to give a 1% ROI, right? But uh, people who care about their communities, they're willing to, um, you know, invest, especially if they're going to get 50% of their money back guaranteed. Even if they lose the other 50%, they're still, you know, they're not losing 100% of their money. So that's been um, a huge change here. But there's also more awareness of a business model and structures and the fact that there's a whole community of people out there that have shifted away from this old, tired mindset of the not-for-profit sector relying on grants and donations and volunteers to a business model, cooperative business model, social enterprise business model, where they're actually actively participating in the marketplace by selling a good or service in order to generate money to support their more social, environmental or cultural goals. After years of experience, Wendy believes that the legislative support for co-ops and social enterprises is crucial to their success. Nova Scotia actually led the way. Um, in Nova Scotia, it's called a Community Economic Development Investment Fund, or a CETA for short. Um, they started there, I think it was about 12 years ago, but it took a long time before it actually took off. Their program is a little bit different, but it's the same thing. So um, there's a lot of wind farms that have been financed in Nova Scotia using this CEDAV. Uh, there's Just Us Coffee Roasters that has raised millions of dollars. There's New Dawn Enterprises in Cape Breton that's ended up creating well over 100 jobs, often for marginalized people in their community again by using this and setting up businesses where people are you know learning they're being trained they're being supported at the same time but they're actually producing a product or a service that people are willing to pay for and so instead of all of these groups having to rely on 
you know, the handouts and, you know, and living on really on peanuts, they're able to actually build pools of capital and do real business um, opportunities. PEI also came on board with this program um, three or four years ago. So it, and I love this little story, if I can tell you about PEI, the very first um, seed if that they did in, in PEI was the Tignish Fisheries Co-op. In a small community, I believe of about 1,200 people, 300 of them worked at this fisheries, which was at risk of closing because it needed a retrofit and it was gonna cost $3 million and they didn't have $3 million. And so they did, they used this tax credit program and in a period of weeks raised the $3 million from this small, well not just the community because people across PEI um, invested as well and saved 300 jobs, you know. So it can be used for a new uh, program or it can be used for something like that. Are you aware of uh, similar programs in the rest of Canada? There are no other programs like this in the rest of Canada, and New Brunswick has now the best uh, CED program, even in the Maritimes. And I actually have been getting calls from Alberta, uh, from the government, and they're interested in bringing it in to play in uh, Alberta. But uh, at this point in time, no, it's New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. Providing meaningful support to social enterprises is more than just about supporting a business. It's about empowering people to make their own decisions about the communities they live in. One that I'm currently involved with is, you know, it's a small rural community, population of about 900 people, um, whose school was uh, slated for closure, the only school in the community, as were many other uh, schools across New Brunswick at, at this time. This was about a year ago. It motivated the people in the community. The thought that they would lose the school was a death toll. They knew that that would be the last strike, that there, that would be the end of their community. They would never be able to attract young families and, and so on. And it spurred them forward. And, uh, you know, at the first meeting um, about this whole, what are we going to do, like 300 people showed up for it, out of, you know, like I say, under 1,000 people. And they fought so hard, and their whole strategy was around economic development. They said, if we can increase the number of businesses and the vibrancy of the economy here, then maybe we can attract people. And so they have been working just unbelievably hard, and they've got all kinds of new strategies on the go. They've saved their schools, so they presented this strategy to government, and government gave them a reprieve of four years to demonstrate that they could do it. But what's really been interesting is how excited people have gotten. In the past, it was kind of like, oh, you know, our community is dying and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, this has changed everything. So now they've turned it around. They've got several different, very viable economic development strategies on the go. They've already had like more than a dozen new families move in just in really a period of months. But it's the... Um, it's the attitude in the community. It's the way that people feel now about the pride in their community. No, it's no longer, oh, we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna die. There's nothing we can do. It's yes, we can. They when they won the reprieve, that was just like gold for them. It's like yeah, we can if we stick together and we work together. And uh, so they're starting all kinds of like they started 
a new music hall so they took one of the churches that was that closed we have so many small churches that are closed in rural communities one of the churches they took they turned it into a music hall and so they get you know all kinds of bands that come in and so people are coming from everywhere to hear them they took another church and they changed it into an artist gallery and again people coming in they've opened up new trails they've developed new partnerships and uh, they they're fixing up their whole village square like an area that had been just kind of starting to fall apart and they've just built like a beautiful green space there or they're building in the process of building but it, it again it's the belief that people have in the ability to maintain their rural community that I really think has made the difference every time you work with people you're going to encounter challenges when you are in the community economic development game those challenges range from dealing with changing political climate to working with communities with a variety of internal problems. I asked her to share some of the things she learned over the years. You know, politics are always really difficult. And uh, every time there's an election, you have to start all over again. So I think we spent a lot of time trying to um, convince government that we needed funding and talk to you know kind of educate those those folks and you know that's I mean that's necessary you have to do that but I think that what we found works much better is to help groups to enable them to empower them to actually take action themselves rather than us trying to convince government of something if you can demonstrate something works and you empower people like these folks that I just talked about that really believe again in their community that um, that's a much better strategy than trying to do it all yourself I really think that it is about you know somehow enabling people for us I think the most valuable role that we play is um, facilitating that dialogue in rural communities you know I'm from a small community you know you know what happens it's very difficult to you know motivate a group of people and have the people in that community necessarily lead the process because there's always those personality dynamics and history and so on so we're able to come in as an independent neutral body whose real job is just to facilitate the process for people and just to help them help them move it forward but to take control of the process and that has been extremely helpful so you get rid of all sort of the small town politics and those sorts of things and when you're able to clear all of that away and just get people focused on the task at hand i find it's much more successful so if groups are have the opportunity to have literally outside facilitators come in people who you know, have a background in, the, in economic development and facilitation and strategic planning and all of those sorts of things. It's, uh, at, and I would say, you know, my advice to communities is to actually invest in that, to not try to necessarily do it all themselves. Unless they're an unusual rural community, they're, 
not, you know, they're likely going to get stuck in some of those, that old history. And, you know, who are you to say that that's the way it should be done? You know, versus, you know, I go into a community, they see me as somebody that's just there to generally help. I don't have a vested interest in any other things. So I think if I was going to give advice, it'd be, you know, find that skilled, uh, you know, neutral facilitator that can come in and, um, and help the community move it along rather than always trying to do everything themselves. For somebody like Wendy Keats, Facing challenges and finding solutions to community problems is what life is all about. Her passion clearly comes through when she thinks about what the future might hold. Well, you're right. I am very hopeful, and, 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 and it doesn't come just from having an optimistic attitude. I get so excited. You know, I just spent the day with a, a group. Uh, it's, you know, a provincial crafts council with their board of directors that um, just they're so committed to their communities. And when they see the light, they get so excited and it just rubs off, you know. And when you can see uh, other people seeing the way and working hard at, uh, at making things happen, we always hear the negative. We hear about how there's dwindling volunteers and nobody wants to sit on a board anymore and nobody wants to do this. Well, I don't see that. You know, uh, yeah, there might be fewer people that are doing it, but the people that are doing it are truly motivated. They're there for the right reasons. They believe in their community. And if you give them just a little bit of hope, I mean, they just grab it. They run with it. And when they have a little success, uh, it's, it's a s- time for celebration. They really do, um, you know, appreciate and, and celebrate and, and, and be reinvigorated and uh, and they appreciate it so much because I think people are so concerned right now about losing their rural communities. Anybody that lives in a rural community does not want to leave it. They're there because they love the lifestyle and they're frightened, very very frightened, justifiably so, of losing their rural community. So when you you know, when they see that there's a chance, and uh, they're just so highly motivated. They're so engaged. I think that's what I'm trying to say. They're so engaged, and they believe so much, and they love their community that when you have the opportunity to work with them, you just can't help but, you know, have that rub off on you, too. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Boyan Fierst, and my guest today was Wendy Keats, the executive director of the Cooperative Enterprise Council of New Brunswick. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of this show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you liked the show. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, Feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. 
The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I am Boyan First, and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.